Welcome to the Cancer Care Connect Workshop. At this time, all participants are in a listen-only mode. During the workshop, you'll hear from a panel of expert speakers. We will allow time for questions and comments following the presentation. Instructions will be given at that time. If anyone should require assistance during the workshop, please press star then zero on your touchstone telephone. As a reminder, this workshop is being recorded. I would now like to introduce your moderator for today's workshop, Dr. Carolyn Messner, Director of Education and Training at Cancer Care. Please go ahead. Well, thank you so much, Norma, and I too would like to welcome everyone to today's uh, program, updates from the 2020 Annual Society of Hematology, or ASH, annual meeting. Um, and uh, this is a very important meeting. It happens um, every year, and it's a, an amazing meeting. Um, and actually, uh, we have wonderful speakers on our program today. I also uh, want to identify that this program is supported by AbbVie, Epizyme, Novartis Oncology, Pfizer, Seattle Genetics, and Educational Grant from TG Therapeutics, Inc., and I really want to thank them for their support of this program. Now, today's program is a collaborative effort between Cancer Care and many other cancer organizations and blood cancer organizations as well, and because of your interest in the program today and this collaboration, we have over 407 participants on the call today, and you come from all over the United States, from both urban uh, rural and suburban areas, and we also have a number of international participants, and I will read out the countries. It's really it's rather impressive. Australia, Canada, Egypt, Germany, India, Iraq, Israel, Malaysia, Netherlands, Portugal, South Africa, Trinidad, Tobago, Turkey, United Arab Emirates, the U.K., and Venezuela. So it's really a bit of a global call as well. Uh, I think all of our participants understand that our speakers are from the U.S. and will be presenting information um, in, uh, in terms that are um, understandable um, and hopefully to all of you on the call. Uh, now, before we introduce our first speaker, we do have a few questions that we'd like to ask you up front. And so I'm going to um, begin by asking you just a few questions um, uh, just to get a sense of what you know before the call starts. So the first question is, I understand the purpose of the American Society of Hematology ASH annual meeting. Yes or no? And those of you who are live streaming will be able to um, uh, um, see these questions and to address them as well. And the second question is, I understand blood cancers in the context of COVID-19, yes or no? And the third question is, I understand COVID-19 vaccines for blood cancers, yes or no? And the fourth question is, I understand the role of precision medicine and clinical trials in the treatment of blood cancers, yes or no? And the fifth and last question in the series is, I understand disease-specific treatment updates from ASH, and please check all that best applied to you. So lymphoma or myeloproliferative neoplasms, MPNs, or leukemia or multi-myeloma, or just to check off those that apply to you. Okay, well, I really want to thank you very much for participating in the polling that we did as questions. It's really helpful. It helps us to know what you know at the beginning of the program, and it helps us to better plan our programs as well. And now it's my pleasure to introduce our first speaker, and our first speaker is Dr. Peter Martin. Dr. Martin is Chief Lymphoma Program Associate Professor of Medicine, Weill Cornell Medicine, Associate Attending Physician, New York Presbyterian, Weill Cornell Medical Center. And Dr. Martin will be addressing the purpose of the American Society of Hematology ASH annual meeting, the importance of clinical trials, an overview of blood cancers in the context of COVID-19, and lymphoma-specific treatment and research updates from ASH, 
and COVID vac- COVID-19 vaccines and blood cancer patients. It's my great pleasure now to turn this program over to my esteemed colleague, Dr. Martin. Well, thank you so much, Dr. Mesner, for that introduction. It's uh, my pleasure, obviously, to have the opportunity um, to be here today. So quickly, the uh, purpose of the annual meeting of the American Society of Hematology, or ASH, really uh, is uh, several fold. One includes education for physicians. There are also opportunities to learn about leadership. We all have the opportunity to uh, participate in advocating for people with cancer uh, and blood cancer specifically. Uh, but probably most importantly, it's a forum for presentation of uh, and discussion of cutting-edge basic science and clinical research. Every year, there are roughly 5,000 oral and poster abstracts presented. And uh, I've had the pleasure of attending the meeting every year since 2004. And it really is the highlight of academic year for uh, so many of us. And uh, this year was different. It was different because of the COVID-19 pandemic. It was a, an entirely virtual meeting. And although that was challenging for a lot of us, I think it was really inspiring to see so many people from around the world making the best out of this situation. And I'm sure there are, in fact, aspects of this virtual platform that will carry over into the future because I think it doesn't expand the accessibility of the meeting to so many places and people. So as Dr. Mesner mentioned, I'll be talking about uh, lymphoma and then briefly touching on uh, COVID and COVID vaccines. So I thought I would talk about two studies and really three themes that came out of the meeting from the lymphoma perspective. The first study I want to touch on is is a study called the CAPTIVATE study. This is a study in people with chronic lymphocytic leukemia or CLL, CLL, SLL. This is a study in which people with previously untreated CLL received two oral drugs, ibrutinib plus venetoclax. Both of these drugs are approved for CLL, SLL, and they tend to be given uh, by themselves uh, for an indefinite period of time. In the CAPTIVATE study, they were given together, ibrutinib plus venetoclax, for a total of 12 months in people who attained a very deep remission, which is measured by um, minimal residual disease, or MRD, So about 75% of people participating in the trial attained undetectable MRD, and they were able to stop treatment. And that was about one year of follow-up after stopping treatment. Over 95% of them uh, remain in remission. So the authors concluded that this all-oral fixed-duration therapy was well-tolerated and had effects that were durable for at least one year after stopping treatment. And that's obviously uh, very exciting for people with uh, CLL, SLL. The other study that I wanted to mention is one called the Bruin study. The Bruin study evaluated a drug, a drug that doesn't really have a name yet. It's called LOXO305, L-O-X-O-305. This is another uh, brutin's tyrosine kinase inhibitor like ibrutinib, but it works a little bit differently than, uh, brutin, than other brutin's tyrosine kinase inhibitors. It doesn't bind to the brutin tyrosine kinase, the enzyme, in the same way that the other BTK inhibitors do. And because of that, it's able to um, inhibit the BTK enzyme despite specific mutations that might exist in the BTK enzyme. For example, we know that about uh, half of all patients who have CLL who experience um, resistance to ibrutinib or other BTK inhibitors uh, have that resistance due to a mutation called the C481S mutation. The LOXO305 drug was designed specifically to overcome that uh, resistance pathway. And remarkably, almost two-thirds of uh, patients in this clinical trial had significant improvement in their lymphoma independent of whether or not that mutation existed. So this was obviously a new line of therapy for people with CLL who experienced progression on standard BTK inhibitors uh, despite a mutation. The story really got interesting, in fact, when they started to look at the LOXO305 drug in other settings where BTK inhibitors are approved, including mantle cell lymphoma and Waldenstrom's macroglobulinemia. In those two diseases, BTK mutations are extremely uncommon but resistance to BTK inhibitors is common. Somewhat remarkably, the LOXO305 drug 
demonstrated an ability to significantly shrink lymphomas in the majority of people with mantle cell lymphoma and Waldenstrom's, even if they had received a prior BTK inhibitor and were resistant to it. So there are not really any clear reasons for why this is working in this situation, but it clearly does, and that's great for patients. The other themes that I wanted to discuss, discuss very briefly, um, number one, uh, mantle cell lymphoma. It's clear that non-chemotherapy regimens are moving very quickly in mantle cell lymphoma. They're already standard of care in the second-line setting, but it's clear that they're coming into the first-line setting. So I suspect that in the next uh, few years, we're going to see uh, standard therapies in the front-line setting. So people with mantle cell lymphoma may never see chemotherapy again. The other two themes that I wanted to talk about refer specifically to immunotherapy. The first one is called CAR T-cells, or chimeric antigen receptor T-cells. These are currently approved in diffuse large B-cell lymphoma and mantle cell lymphoma. They have the ability to cure lymphomas that were otherwise considered uh, very challenging to treat. What we're seeing now is that CAR T-cells are expanding. New uh, CAR T-cells are becoming potentially better and better tolerated. And uh, we're starting to see them in other kinds of lymphoma, including in a clinical trial called the ZUMA-5 trial, where these CAR T cells uh, induced a complete response in about 80% of people with uh, follicular lymphoma. And we assume that some of those patients may, in fact, be cured. The other kind of immunotherapy I wanted to discuss briefly are called bispecific antibodies, which are um, really a special way to redirect T cells or redirect an arm of the immune system to the tumor, inducing an immune response that's often capable of inducing a remarkable tumor shrinkage. We saw at the ASH meeting four different bispecific antibody products presented in multiple different contexts, and it's clear that they're active. And in many ways, they're easier to administer than CAR T cells, including in combinations with chemotherapies and other drugs. So I predict that we're going to be seeing a lot more of these very rapidly. Now I'll touch briefly on COVID-19, which is obviously um, a, a huge topic in 2020. Um, first of all, I think uh, it's important to acknowledge that COVID-19 is unfortunately still with us. There are, I think, always going to be some evolving and potentially conflicting data regarding the impact of COVID-19 on people with blood cancer as we learn more about it. Um, and as treatments change, we're going to see a different impact of the, of the virus on people who might get it. Um, but what, what remains um, steadfast throughout the whole pandemic has been the mainstay of, of preventing infection, that's specifically social distancing masking and hand hygiene. And I think this is uh, important for all of us to continue to do that. Even when there's a vaccine, it's going to be important to us, uh, for us to continue to take those three things into account. And, and lastly, the issue is vaccines. Yeah, we're all, I think, receiving calls and emails uh, multiple, multiple times every day about vaccines. There are a lot of questions that people with blood cancers have about vaccines um, for themselves, for caregivers. Uh, all of us uh, who are medical professionals uh, are also learning about them. It's important to understand that um, for those of us who are eligible to receive the vaccine, this is probably the best way to prevent uh, us from getting sick uh, from COVID-19. It's also uh, may be an important way to prevent the spread of COVID-19. Um, there are a couple of key, key, key points there. Uh, currently, uh, there are recommendations that people who have had COVID-19 should still get the vaccine. It's not entirely clear to what degree antibodies from the actual infection persistent. So it's probably true that people would still be eligible to receive the vaccine. Regarding the safety of the vaccines, it appears as though that's quite good. I know that there are some concerns. We hear them all the time, but I think uh, all of us who work in medicine are all planning to get the vaccine. And there's no reason to think, uh, or there's no reason to suspect that anyone who's had a history of cancer or cancer treatment would have any different uh, uh, response to the vaccine in terms of safety. So it will not be dangerous to anyone with cancer. 
In terms of the efficacy, this I think is likely to be highly um, situation dependent and it's evolving over time and the information about this is evolving over time. And so it's important I think to continue to watch CDC recommendations and to speak with your, your doctor uh, about that vaccine. I think in many cases it's entirely appropriate to get the vaccine. In some cases it may be reasonable to wait a month or two or three months. Um, but, you know, I think it's important to uh, continue an open dialogue with your physician. And I think it's important also really to um, support the science of behind the vaccines. I think we do hear bizarre stories sometimes in the media. I, I know a couple of uh, patients told me uh, on Tuesday that they were concerned about microchips. And uh, I think that we have to continue to support science and support uh, the positivity behind vaccines. And uh, as those positive feelings uh, emulate, I think the negative concerns about them will start to go away. So that's it for me. Thank you very much. Oh, thank you very much, Dr. Martin. That was a superb presentation, and I really want to thank you. And I, I know there'll be questions for you during the Q&A, so thank you so much. Thank you. Um, and our next speaker is Dr. Ruben Messa. Dr. Messa is Director of Mays Cancer Center at UT Health, San Antonio, MD Anderson. Mays Family Foundation Distinguished University Presidential Chair, Professor of Medicine, UT Health San Antonio Cancer Center, and NCI Designated Cancer Center. And Dr. Massa will be addressing overview of myeloproliferative neoplasms, or MPN, MPN specific treatment and research updates from ASH in the context of COVID-19, and communicating with the healthcare team with telehealth, telemedicine appointments. It's really my great pleasure now to turn this program over to my esteemed colleague, Dr. Messa. Great. Well, uh, Carolyn, thank you so much for the invitation. I'm always honored to be on, on these calls and hope that it will be helpful. So uh, I'll be addressing myeloproliferative neoplasms, so those individuals with essential thrombocythemia, polycythemia vera, and myelofibrosis, and uh, many interesting updates from the ASH meeting. So first, let me pick up where my colleague Dr. Martin left off as related to COVID. So one, there was many different presentations related to COVID. Uh, one, we fortunately have not seen that MPN patients are any more likely necessarily than the general population to develop COVID, which is good. Now doesn't mean that they're not at the same risk as everyone else, so please continue to do everything you can to keep yourself safe in terms of masking, social distancing, etc. Second, as it relates to the vaccines, certainly connect with your doctor, but at least at this point in time, uh, do not see any strong reason why MPN patients should not receive the COVID vaccine, particularly given its, its uh, protective effects. Uh, but definitely check with your doctor, uh, but likely be able to receive that as soon as that is uh, available. Third, we have learned uh, that uh, individuals on JAK inhibition, particularly on ruxolitinib, uh, it is wisest if they develop the COVID infection. This medicine, which is an anti, has anti-inflammatory properties, it's probably wise not to stop that medicine if one develops COVID. And there's experiences from Italy suggesting strongly that, that they not do so. What I strongly suggest is, in addition for everyone trying to keep themselves safe, if you develop COVID, contact your hematologist. Have them be part of your healthcare team as appropriate in the decision-making regarding if you need therapy for COVID, if uh, you benefit from being on a blood thinner while infected with COVID, uh, recovery, uh, if, uh, uh, heaven forbid, you end up in the hospital and need more intensive therapy, have them be key, key part of that. Indeed, during this time, I strongly encourage everyone to be actively engaging in their healthcare and connecting with their full healthcare team, not only in hematology, but your other doctors, and fully leverage the capabilities of telemedicine. Telemedicine really has been incredibly helpful. I know for myself and, and my colleagues on this call, we've been able to connect with patients really uh, around uh, our city, our state, our country, uh, and 
kept in very close contact. That can be a very rewarding connection. Laboratory studies can be drawn remotely, uh, particularly for people who are at a great distance. So certainly keep connected with folks. Additionally, if you have healthcare needs, our healthcare centers are probably some of the safest places you can go in our society currently. Everyone's being screened. People are socially distant. So whether that be regarding your routine health care, such as a screening colonoscopy, mammography, or whether it be to go in to be evaluated if you have symptoms or concerns of a medical problem, or for management of your disease, uh, please stay in close contact with your, your health care team and leverage telemedicine is one resource for that. Now let's pivot a bit toward the uh, updates in terms of therapies. One, I came away from this year's ASH meeting with tremendous enthusiasm for the progress being made in helping patients with myeloproliferative neoplasms and indeed across heme malignancies. Truly, there are dozens of therapies being developed for each of the heme malignancies in a way that makes us incredibly excited. Uh, I sit on the National Board for the Leukemia and Lymphoma Society and I'm just overwhelmed by the, the tremendous progress we're seeing against uh, all of the heme malignancies, the blood cancers. Now, for MPN specifically, let's start with myelofibrosis. And many things start in myelofibrosis in part in their testing because it is the most problematic of myeloproliferative neoplasms. It can give individuals enlargement of the spleen, difficult symptoms, scarring the bone marrow, low blood counts, and the potential of the disease becoming life-threatening or shortening someone's life. So first takeaway from this year's ASH is that the therapies that we're having are making an impact and patients are living longer as well as living better. Analysis from MD Anderson showing that patients over the last 10 years clearly living longer if they've been treated with JAK inhibition uh, and that's made a significant impact compared to before 2010. We saw that there's new drugs that are being developed that also are suggesting improvements in uh, how long an individual might live with the disease. Both the JAK inhibitor mamalitinib that can improve splenomegaly symptoms, help anemia, and hopefully help people live longer, as well as a drug uh, working in a different way, a middle stat that uh, is called a telomerase inhibitor. Both of these studies are in ongoing phase three studies. Next, there's several new drugs that have very exciting data in various stages of testing. Uh, a drug from a company called Constellation that is a BET inhibitor, the CPI-0610, that when added to ruxolitinib seems to have a significant uh, increase in the initial response rates for people treated with the disease. They're also looking at it in other clinical situations. The uh, BCL2 inhibitor from the company Abby called Navitaclax uh, added on to ruxolitinib after people have come, people have been on ruxolitinib and had a suboptimal response. This can help to double down and improve the response. The uh, new drug that's an LSD1 inhibitor, Bomodemostat, uh, which is IMG7289, for people that have been on ruxolitinib and come off, them having a significant improvement in spleen and symptoms. There's also uh, exciting updates regarding polycythemia vera, multiple abstracts showing the benefit of long-acting interferons, both ropegylated interferon from uh, Europe uh, and Asia, uh, showing uh, good benefit in controlling P. vera in terms of counts and molecular burden of the disease, as well as suggestions that uh, interferons may be able to, in some individuals, put the disease into a remission uh, and really help to control the disease. Finally, looking at new air agents in polycythemia vera, including a new class of drugs that are mimics of the, of the molecule in the body called hepcidin that mimic the process of phlebotomy that might help to control elevated blood counts in P. vera patients uh, in a way that doesn't require phlebotomy and will allow iron deficiency to heal. So overall, I would take 
the sum of my comments to be very hopeful that uh, the uh, future looks very encouraging for multiple new options for patients with MPNs, better control, patients living longer, living better, uh, and it makes us all very hopeful for options for the future. And with that, I will hand the call back to Dr. Messner. Thank you. Oh, thank, thank you so much, Dr. Messner. That was outstanding, really wonderful presentation and just so much great information for everybody to have. So thank you so much. Thank you. And um, our next speaker is Dr. Michael Morrow. Dr. Morrow is leader of Myeloproliferative Neoplasms Program, member of Memorial Sloan Kettering Cancer Center, and professor of Cornell Medicine. And Dr. Morrow will be addressing an overview of leukemia, leukemia-specific treatment and research updates from ASH in the context of COVID-19, the role of precision medicine, and guidelines to prepare for these appointments, including technology and list of questions. It's really my great pleasure now to turn this program over to my esteemed colleague, Dr. Morrow. Thanks, Carolyn. I, uh, I have to admit, I think I probably need about four hours to cover those topics. Um, but um, uh, let me start by talking a little bit about leukemia. I think um, leukemia is always a difficult word and, and a challenging diagnosis. First thing to say is that leukemia comes in many different types and forms, um, acute and chronic um, to start with. Um, I focus a lot of attention on chronic myeloid leukemia personally. Um, but um, so, and leukemia can start in many different ways. It can be the result of previous treatment or damage to the bone marrow, maybe a spontaneous disease. We now know that there are um, precursor conditions to some forms of chronic leukemia like CLL. We know a lot more about, some, about how our bone marrow changes. Um, it was a very provocative presentation at the ASH meeting about how changes in our blood may be detected very early in life related to myeloproliferative disorders, not that they become dangerous or patients need to worry about children or grandchildren just yet, but, but our understanding is becoming so vast that um, I think we really are unraveling um, how leukemia starts really from the very beginning, not um, when it's in front of us and it's um, caused trouble with the blood. But essentially, it's, a, it's that the bone marrow as, a, as, a, as the blood factory is either not functioning very well because it's making cells that are, are, are called blasts, which are like blanks and don't function. It can be that it's making cells in excess, like chronic myeloid or chronic lymphocytic leukemia. Um, and those can be conditions sometimes that don't need immediate treatment, although now CLL, we have great advances. And chronic myeloid leukemia is very highly treatable with targeted therapy. Acute leukemias are much more of a threat and often uh, trigger complications and need for what we call uh, a lot of support, uh, transfusions and blood, um, things to prevent infection. But our treatment arm has really changed. Um, we, the advances in acute leukemia, especially acute myeloid leukemia, have been astronomical. And the ASHBE in 2020 was no, no slouch when it came to providing uh, new information. So let me move now into talking to you a bit about what we learned at ASH um, for some of the leukemias. I'll start with what I think... Um, from my take and, and definitely my colleagues' take, which probably was a really blockbuster presentation, was um, for a drug called um, magrolimab. The names don't necessarily tell you a lot about what the medicines are, but we've essentially blown up the field of immune therapy in a m number of different ways, and I'll share some other thoughts on that too. But magrolimab is an antibody, um, so it, it's an um, antibody that's targeting something called CD47. So that's a, that's a molecule um, on cells that are telling the immune system to kind of ignore a cancer cell. So if you block that, you kind of mask that. So um, that's a good thing, and, and that, that type of antibody could be therapeutic on its own. The trial that was presented at ASH was a combination of that, that antibody, which would essentially prime the immune system and allow it to wake up a bit and say, hey, that cell's got to go, in addition to a drug called azacitidine. And azacitidine is a medicine given sometimes orally, I'll get to that, or also intravenously, as a way to jumpstart the cellular machinery and, and start, start to turn on the expression and the activation of more healthy patterns than normal cells and genes. We'll also get rid of some cells because some cells are too far gone, they're too far damaged to affect it. Inflammation was extremely powerful. It was extremely powerful for a tough leukemia where and unfortunately, the, 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 gene, the, the normal machinery itself that tell the body to suppress a cancer have been turned off, something called P53. 
So three-quarters of the people um, in this study had had this um, uh, had, a, had an abnormality in P53, so their cancer suppressor genes were turned off, so the cancer was allowed to go unchecked. Um, very well tolerated. There was some early reduction in red blood cells, um, but not so much uh, reduction in white blood cells and platelets. And there was about a three-quarter of, of, of the patients who were treated responded, um, and nearly half of them were complete. Um, this uh, may even have already started to show that people can survive longer with uh, difficult-to-treat leukemia where there's um, sort of a tough molecular profile with this P53. That was very exciting. Continuing on the same thing with immune therapy. So it was an antibody drug presented called lotituzumab. Again, um, uh, a quarter for who can figure out how the, the drugs are named. Um, but the um, so this is more about what it is or how it functions. So this is a bispecific antibody. Again, another immune advance. Here we're going to um, put two sort of magnets together, one that's going to attract uh, a marker on cells that are related to uh, a normal feature expressed on, on myeloid leukemia cells called CD123, and then it's going to um, it's combined with another magnet or another antibody that's going to attract T cells through something called CD3. That's a very smart technology. You kind of you're you're making this introduction that shouldn't um, isn't normally happening in, in patients with an AML, but but needs to where the immune system is engaging with leukemia cells. So this was quite encouraging as well. This was in again tough to treat leukemia where people had not gone into remission or they had gone into remission but then lost remission. And antibody drugs can have side effects like something called cytokine release syndrome, which is where the inflammation um, can be strong because the immune response can be quite activated. This is a little bit like how sometimes COVID-19 can cause complications, but um, we know so much more about it in leukemia, and we can be quite careful and treat it. And, uh, there's a lot of overlap. We've actually learned how to treat COVID some, by being smart about how to treat cytokine release syndrome. So here we had about a 30% response rate, but, it, but the, the nice thing was about half the patients were able to move on to transplant. It got the leukemia back under control, so they were able to take that next step. Very promising. Needs more time to develop, but another great advance. The... Um, Next study I'll talk to you about was um, for patients who were in remission, thank goodness, but we we're looking for something to keep them in remission. And there was a nice study of a drug um, that I mentioned earlier, azacitidine, but now in an oral form. So this um, was really able to re nearly double um, the survival and um, increase the time uh, or the relapse. It's called relapse-free survival. The chances that people would survive without the leukemia coming back, which is obviously the, the goal. And this is one of those classic studies in medicine where it was against the placebo. I know people get worried about that. But, you know, in this case, people have been fully treated. They got chemo intensive chemotherapy. If they could get consolidation or finishing chemotherapy, they already had. Um, so it was, you know, it was really saying, can we do even better? And, and the side effects were pretty limited. Um, it, it was helpful in people who had what's called minimal residual leukemia, uh, still sort of a, a vestige or a mark of their AML, which can be a bit more of a risk than those that don't. Um, and in fact, it converted about a 30% fraction of people who had a good response um, to um, a, what's called an MRD negative state, which is particularly encouraging. There was um, there were many other studies in AML, um, and the uh, last one I'll mention um, um, would be related to myelodysplasia, which is a bit of a precursor disease to um, AML, and many of many acute leukemia presentations that you might hear about are, are covering the combination of venetoclax, which is a drug that essentially allows cells to undergo, undergo programmed cell death by, by working with the machinery that the cells are trying to regulate, um, whether to kind of allow themselves to turn off and die or not, um, something called the BCL uh, pathway. And that drug azacitidine, again, really coming in handy a lot. So this combination of venetoclax and azacitidine really changed um, the, the landscape in the AML, but what about myelodysplasia, which is not leuke acute leukemia, but it can be close. So in high-risk myelodysplasia, very promising results. And of course, this had to be studied just like it was studied in AML. Um, this study showed an 80% response rate, um, especially for, and the, the best response in patients could take the full dose of venetoclax. Venetoclax has to be started slowly because that, that cytokine release can happen there too. It's actually sort of a good the problem in a way. It's actually because a lot of the cells are trying to clear it out and the body just has to clear the waste out. You have to do it carefully, often in the hospital. Um, again, this was people with what's called higher risk myelodysplasia where they might have had more lower blood counts. Their genetic test might have been not as favorable. Um, and um, 
What's really nice to hear is that on the patient side, that people's symptoms improved, their shortness of breath, fatigue, their sense of how they were doing improved across the board. And when people had a complete response, it was a dramatic improvement. That's that's particularly exciting. That not only did it respond, people responded well, but they felt good and their symptoms improved. I want to finish with um, the last study, which is probably the most close to my heart, which was when it went into what's called the late-breaking abstract basket. That means we were rushing to get all the information um, to the table, and, and thank goodness the ASH committee thought it was important uh, and were able to present it in, in the last day of the meeting. And it was for a trial in chronic leukemia where we brought an, a newer drug called Asiminib, or ABL001, um, and we compared it to a drug called Basutinib. In people who had had a few of these types of medications, generally they had other CML drugs like Levex, Spricel, Tisigna, and they, they were looking for a better response. This was chronic CML, and it was, um, again, the kind of really important trial we need to do where we compare what we're using now or what we generally might use now, although there are other, other options in that space, a drug called Panandib specifically. Um, and this is a trial where people are brave enough to say, you know what, I'll take a chance. Tell me which arm I'm going to go in. I'm going to get one drug or the other because both arms are good, and we want to see which one might be better. Um, the answer was pretty clear that Asiminib was better than Basutinib. It got people into what's called a major molecular remission by about six months, which is pretty early and pretty safe level of remission. Um, there weren't excess side effects. In fact, Asiminib is a very well-tolerated drug. Of course, we need to follow these medications and these studies longer to understand the long-term outcomes, any long-term safety issues. But I think this really makes a mark uh, for a new advance in chronic myeloid leukemia, that we're going to have a new drug, Asiminib, hopefully FDA-approved uh, sometime soon based on this kind of data. And we'll be able to use it in this in this setting, and then we'll continue to study it and maybe be able to use it um, earlier. So, the last few minutes, um, Carolyn wanted me to touch on precision medicine and preparing for appointments. You know, precision medicine. I think I've just shown you that we're looking at specific targets, molecules, um, uh, mutations. Um, one of the most important things. There's actually, um, you know, commercial advertising saying like, you know, let me go for the molecular test to understand how my cancer ticks better. I think that's actually a good message. People really ought to ask questions about what's making my cancer tick. Are there any specific um, trials or studies or new medicines that I might be suitable for? Because the best profiling we can do over leukemia, sometimes we really can narrow down our treatments and get to some of the advances I've just shared with you or even things that are already out there and being used in a standard fashion. Like in acute leukemia, the, the split 3 is a target where there are many drugs in that space. I didn't have time to mention a study that uh, combined um, a FLT3 inhibitor with a drug called venetoclax and looked also very promising. And then preparing, preparing for appointments, especially in, in the era of COVID, um, whatever you need to do, um, call the office, call that helpline, grab your grandchildren, grab your children, grab your husband or wife or whoever's tech savvy. Um, get that iPhone, that iPad, that, that smartphone working. Make sure you know. Um, make sure it's charged. You know, be prepared. This is the era when we've learned that telehealth can be a huge plus for us. We can talk to people, um, you know, more freely, more regularly. Um, we can touch patients who um, sometimes are further away. We can we can do a lot, you know, in the comfort of, of people's home, not bring them out, especially as the pandemic is still um, um, uh, in an intense form. Um, we'll figure out, as hopefully things get better, how to use this smartly in, in the future. But don't be afraid to make these telehealth appointments. Make sure your technology is working. Ask for help. Don't be afraid. We still know how to pick up the phone. We still want to see people in the office when we need to. We still want to touch and feel, and, and someday we want to hug you again, honestly. Um, and we will. Um, so everyone stay safe, and thank you for the time and your attention. Oh, thank you so much, Dr. Morrow. That was really a wonderful presentation. Just very, very uh, lots of in, lots of wonderful information. And uh, and yes, we do hope hope for the day when um, actually people will be able to see each other again um, more actively. So that's. Um, safely, but not now at this point. Um, but in terms of your medical appointments, that, of course, is something you must discuss with your doctor and, and do come in sometimes for appointments when they're necessary and use the telehealth as your doctor recommends. Thank you. And I know there'll be questions for you, Dr. Morrow. And um, our next speaker is Dr. Uh, William Bensinger. And Dr. Bensinger is uh, with the Myeloma and Transplant Program, Swedish Cancer Institute. And uh, Dr. Bensinger will be addressing an overview of multi-myeloma, multi-myeloma-specific treatment and research updates from ASH in the context of COVID-19, key questions to ask your healthcare team and quality of life concerns, including physical activity. It's really my great pleasure now to turn this program over to my esteemed colleague, Dr. Bensinger. 
Thank you, Carolyn. It's a pleasure to be here, and I always enjoy uh, these particular types of conferences. So just by way of review, for those of you that are less familiar, multiple myeloma is a blood cancer that arises from a particular type of white blood cell called a plasma cell. And plasma cells are normal cells that make antibodies. These are proteins that protect us from infection, and they play a role in bone repair. And when myeloma develops, one of these plasma cells develops a damage to the DNA. And when enough damage occurs, the plasma cell, now known as a myeloma cell, begins to divide and reproduce in an uncontrolled fashion. This is a hallmark of all cancers. These myeloma cells fill up the bone marrow, crowd out normal cells, resulting in low numbers of red cells or anemia, bone destruction and abnormal bone fractures, high calcium levels, and kidney impairment. Myeloma occurs in about 35,000 new patients a year in the U.S., and it's about 15 to 2% of all cancers. Now, myeloma patients commonly have high levels of an abnormal antibody we call a monoclonal or M protein, but paradoxically have depressed levels of normal antibodies, making patients susceptible to infection. This is especially important in the era of COVID-19. As you know, we are experiencing an unprecedented surge in COVID cases nationwide, and as immunocompromised patients, patients with myeloma should be especially diligent about mask usage, hand washing, and social isolation. Everyone in your household should get a flu vaccine, including yourself, and when it becomes available, the coronavirus vaccine. While your immune response to the vaccine may be less robust than a normal patient, any degree of immunity will improve your chances of doing well if you are exposed to this virus. Now, treatment in the clinic or hospital does pose some risk of COVID exposure, but it's important to emphasize that in general, patients with symptomatic myeloma should not delay their treatment in order to avoid the virus. Delay in treatment could result in further organ damage and deterioration in overall health. And you should discuss the pros and cons of any desired treatment delay with your cancer specialist. Now, I'm pleased to say that the treatment of myeloma has improved greatly over the past 20 years. And as a result, patients are living much longer with their myeloma. The standard of care currently is to use a combination of three drugs from four groups. First, a corticosteroid, usually dexamethasone combined with an immunomodulatory drug uh, and a third drug, either a proteasome inhibitor or a monoclonal antibody, most commonly targeting a protein called CD38. Imids are the most commonly used, uh, are most commonly lenalidomid, but sometimes a drug like thalidomide may be used. Proteasome inhibitors could be bortezomib, Ixazomib, which is an oral form of bortezomib, or carfilzomib. And as mentioned, the most commonly used 38 is daratumumab. And there is emerging data um, that four drug combinations using each of, each of these classes is superior to three drugs, but that's less firmly established. There was one report from the recent uh, virtual ASH meeting that underscored that prolonged disease control of newly diagnosed myeloma patients receiving a combination of daratumumab, lenalidomid, and DEX with more than 60% of patients uh, maintaining disease control with four years of follow-up. And there was a smaller study using a four-drug combination, one, one from each group, daratumumab, bortezomib, lenalidomid, and dexamethasone, and they reported a 69% complete response rate after completion of this four-drug regimen, and this improved to 94% after two years of maintenance with daratumumab and lenalidomid. Now, there are newer treatment approaches that are evolving rapidly, and these are mainly focused on ways to bolster the immune system. 
the first and now well-established are these monoclonal antibodies that I mentioned, daratumumab, isotuximab, which is another CD38 antibody, and elotuzumab, which targets another myeloma-specific protein. Now, a novel target uh, using uh, targeting BCMA, which stands for B-cell maturation antigen, widely expressed on myeloma cells, and this antibody is coupled to a chemotherapeutic agent. These are so-called immunotoxins, where the antibody is directed into the myeloma cell, or excuse me, the, the toxin is directed into the myeloma cell via the antibody. This one, uh, called bolanumab, was approved by the FDA this summer. It has a single agent response rate of 31%, and at the ASH meeting, it was reported to have a response rate of 86% when combined with pomalidomid and dexamethasone. This drug does have one major toxicity, which is reversible corneal damage, which can temporarily limit eyesight. By and large, this is reversible, but it is a serious potential side effect. Now, there are other novel immunotherapies. You've heard about CAR T-cells, and myeloma is no exception. We also have bispecific T-cell or bite molecules with promising activity. And one or more of these therapeutics are likely to receive FDA approval in the next year. Now, there were updates of several BCMA-targeted CAR T-cells with response rates of between 75 to 100% in very heavily pretreated patients. And we're talking about patients who've received six, seven, eight, even nine lines of prior therapy. These remissions can last for eight to 12 months, but some patients have remained in remission beyond 18 months. And we don't yet know what proportion of these patients are going to have long-term control. Now, the other group of immunotherapeutics are these bite molecules, or these so-called bispecific T-cell engaging molecules. Again, these are highly engineered antibody-like proteins which are given intravenously or subcutaneously. They're able to bind to myeloma cells via the specific target they're made for, and then they recruit the patient's own T cells to attack. So if you will, it's CAR T cell in a little vial that you can give, much like a drug. Now, there were at least five BCMA-targeted bite molecules reported in myeloma, all with very high response rates of 50 to 80%, again, in very heavily pretreated patients. There were also early results reported on two new bite molecules targeting novel proteins. One is called G-protein coupled receptor class C, and another one has an unpronounceable name, but it's BFCR435A. Both of these antigens are highly expressed in myeloma cells, and they have prior, uh, very high early activity, but these are very early studies. Now, with regard to quality of life, it's just important to remember that disease control will do much to improve quality of life, but it's also important to balance the treatment side effects with disease control. And this is where it's very important to talk to your healthcare team. Let them know if you're having deterioration or side effects, uh, perhaps neuropathy, or extreme fatigue or other side effects from your treatment, and they can modify the kinds of treatment you have without necessarily withdrawing treatment so that you can balance this and, and get the best quality of life possible for you. So in summary, uh, the treatment landscape for myeloma is improving continuously, and there are several new treatment approaches likely to receive approval in the new year. And while COVID remains a challenge for all of us, I think the vaccine will likely result in clearing of this pandemic with measurable improvements seen in four to six months. And with that, I'll stop. Oh, thank you so much, Dr. Densinger. What a wonderful presentation, just uh, superb, and what a wonderful um, way to end your presentation as well. And for people to think about this, it, it, it gives people hope. So thank you so much. Um, and... Um, 
I'm just going to say a few words now about the services you can access from Cancer Care. I'll be very brief. Um, uh, so I'm Carolyn Mester. I'm Director of Education at Cancer Care. I'm an oncology social worker. And um, Cancer Care offers uh, our services nationally and our programs nationally. Um, so anyone in the, in the U.S. can get these services. And um, people either call us on our hope line or they uh, go to our website and post a question. And then one of our oncology social workers will respond to them very quickly. Our services are uh, widespread. We offer practical and financial assistance. We also have a co-payment assistance program. We do offer case management services, and that means that we're going to get you, if we don't have the resource ourselves, we will not just give you a list of places to go, but we will go with you, not physically, but um, either online, help you to connect up with those services or the telephone to be sure that you get what you need. And if you don't, we'll find another resource until we find what you need. Um, we also offer online support groups. Um, those people liked a lot because, and on many different types of cancers and blood cancers as well, um, and for all different ages, caregivers, all different relationships as well. And, and those groups are, are very important to people. They don't occur in real time, so there's any time of the day or night one can post, um, and our oncology social workers will facilitate those groups and are on the groups during um, business hours, um, so a business day, so that actually, but nevertheless, people find them tremendously helpful because often people are up at night and or their time zones and really want to post something at that time. Um, also, we offer, of course, these education workshops, and we also have publications and a lot of other services as well. So just to give you a snapshot of our services, um, at the end of the program, you'll be getting, of course, uh, survey monkey evaluation, but you'll also be getting um, a list of resources that we mentioned during the program today that you can access that would be helpful to you. Now, before we move on to the Q&A, um, we just have a few brief questions to ask you um, in, in, as we wind up um, the, the, this part. And the reason we ask these questions is to get a sense of uh, what you knew at the beginning of the program and what you know at the end of the program. So the first question is, as a result of this workshop, I have a better understanding of the purpose of the American Society of Hematology ASH annual meeting. And the answer is either yes or no. And the next question is, as a result of this workshop, I have a better understanding of blood cancers in the context of COVID-19. And again, yes or no. And the next question is, as a result of this workshop, I have a better understanding of COVID-19 vaccines for blood cancers. Yes or no? And there's two more of this one. As a result of this workshop, I have a better understanding of the role of precision medicine and clinical trials in the treatment of blood cancers, yes or no? And the very last question is, as a result of this workshop, I am more prepared about disease-specific treatment updates from ASH on and select all that apply. So lymphoma, myeloproliferative neoplasms, leukemia, or multimyeloma. So just choose the ones that apply to you. I want to thank you all for participating in this uh, in this uh, in these questions. It really helps us to better plan programs for you. And now we are going to actually have posed questions to our speakers. I'm going to ask Norma to bring all of our speakers on board. And we have quite a few questions um, online at this point. But I'm going to ask Norma to give any everyone instructions because everyone may not know how to queue up and ask a question. So Norma, if you could do that. Thank you. Ladies and gentlemen, if you would like to ask a question, please press star then one on your touchstone telephone. If your question has been answered or you wish to remove yourself from the queue, you may press the pound key. Those of you on the web may submit questions by clicking Ask a Question. Again, that's star one to ask your question. So we do have a number of online questions that came in during the program, so I'm going to begin with them. Um, so I'm going to give, this is a question, um, 
So, Dr. Martin, um, and it's uh, the question is, do we know yet if the COVID vaccine will have to be administered annually yet? Uh, it's an interesting question. I think um, the reason why the flu vaccine is administered annually is because the flu changes from year to year. And so a new vaccine is developed based on the predicted strain of influenza that we might be seeing that year. The COVID vaccine or coronavirus or COVID-19 is, uh, it may it may change over time. Right now, we don't have a lot of evidence that that's the case. And so theoretically, the vaccine should provide long-lasting uh, uh, prevent or protection from uh, COVID-19. Um, but we don't know how long it will last. So it could be could be that we need to take it um, at some point again in the future, like a booster, like we take tetanus uh, every ten years, for example. More more to come, I think. Excellent. Okay. Thank you. That's very helpful for people to know. And um, uh, thank you so much. Thanks. Um, and. A uh, question for Dr. Morrow, um, and this has to do with AML. Can someone uh, address new treatments for AML, which is what I have been diagnosed with? Um, uh, could you um, just in general address that? The, the person identifies that they are currently receiving treatment with Dokogan 2. Um, so if you could address that. Well, I'm, I'm hoping the overview I gave, I, I actually... All, all the drugs I spoke about were new therapies for AML, except for the last one, which is a, a, a Um But, you know, in broad terms, AML treatment used to just fall into a couple of big categories of intensive chemotherapy or more simple supported measures and, and low-intensity chemotherapy. We now profile AML um, by its genetic makeup and, and uh, certain targets, uh, things like IDH, FLT3, um, and, and we are really um, quite more uh, apt to use a lower-intensity induction regimen or first treatment with, with newer drugs, um, like some of the ones I also mentioned, primarily a combination of this drug, azacitidine, which has really become quite a useful drug in myelodysplasia and acute leukemia, as well as this drug, venetoclax, which is a drug that's active in many cancers, both chronic lymphocytic leukemia um, and lymphoid cancers and AML. So I'm not sure um, of the agent that question, uh, the person who asked the question uh, mentioned that isn't ringing a bell, but I think um, think of the treatment and categories of some people who are still fit for and, and do well with what's called intensive chemotherapy. Um, there are a lot of patients who are better served by um, lower intensity chemotherapy, which is actually still now quite a bit more effective than ever. And of course, there's a host of new therapies, um, as example by the research at Ash, and and um, and even many therapies uh, approved. And 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 one last point would be, as as asked, you know, the, the question about precision medicine. AML is definitely a disease now where um, having your disease pro, you know profiled, if not just one from the beginning, but you know later on as well, things might change. New targets, new treatments could become um, important, and uh, so I encourage that. Excellent. Thank you. And a question for uh, Dr. Bensinger. Um, what are the risks of secondary cancers with multi-myeloma treatments, maintenance, including bisphosphonates? So um, the baseline risk of second malignancies in myeloma is in the range of about 3 to 3%. Uh, however, there are certain drug and drug combinations that will increase that risk. The most well-established one is a combination of alkylating agents and the imid drugs, lenalidomid or pomalidomid, most, uh, most demonstrated for uh, lenalidomid. Um, that combination, either given with low-dose drug like melphalan or given for maintenance after a high-dose melphalan, does increase the risk of secondary uh, blood malignancies from about 3% to about 6%. Most of us feel that risk, um, at least with regard to maintenance after autologous transplant, most of us feel that risk is outweighed 
by the beneficial effect of low-dose lenalidomide on remission. You can double the length of remission with lenalidomide versus no maintenance at all. Thank you. Thank you. Um, and um, question uh, for, um, I think, Dr. Martin or Dr. Moore, I'm not sure. Are the Pfizer, are the, are the vaccines preferred and safe for CLL patients? So I'll, I'll take that, and if anyone else wants to chime in, they can. The uh, COVID vaccines are undoubtedly going to be safe for people with hematologic malignancies, no question. Uh, as safe as they would be for anyone else. The um, the only question is the relative degree of efficacy, and uh, their data will continue to emerge, hopefully, over time. Right now, we don't have any reason to um, recommend against getting vaccines for any reason, however. Um, Carolina, this is Mike, Michael Marr. Yes. I can answer that as well. I, I think that was an excellent, um, I, I agree completely. And we have to be honest with ourselves that we know they're not haven't been tested in cancer patients. Um, our advice is going on the basic principle of what is the technology, these messenger RNA vaccines, um, how do they work? Uh, they are dependent on the immune system, so we have to be thinking ahead to, about the, how will the response be. But our main principle is that we don't want people to be afraid. We want people to ask questions and make their decisions, but we expect that they should be very safe based on the data we have available. And then we expect them to be efficacious. There may be some differences um, that we, we observe over, uh, later, uh, but but um, this is our path forward, and we're all in, in it together. I, I jokingly tell my patients if they have questions about side effects to call us back in the office, the healthcare team, because we might have gotten the jab already, um, and you know we can reassure um, that it, uh, all is well. Excellent. Um, and I guess for Dr. Bensinger. Um, will blood cancer patients need authorization from a doctor to obtain vaccine as immunocarbonized patient? That's a very good question. Um, that's going to be determined by what the state and local laws are. So I think it'll vary from state to state and perhaps even uh, more local at the municipality level. Um, we usually require uh, orders for vaccines in general, so I think the COVID will likely be no exception uh, that we will have to authorize it for our patients. Excellent. Um, and we'll take just one last question. This is for Dr. Martin. Were there any new abstracts about follicular lymphoma? Yeah, lots of abstracts about follicular lymphoma. I think in particular I mentioned the CAR T cells and bispecific antibodies, both of those new kinds of immunotherapy. And, and I think we heard those same technologies are moving into other spaces as well. But I think that, you know, in, in our lifetime, we are going to see cures for follicular lymphoma, which is, you know, the most exciting news I think we, we could have imagined. Excellent. Well, actually, I want to thank all of our speakers. Um, this has been an amazing, uh, an amazing, uh, I have to say, program. Um, it's, uh, it, I have to say, our speakers have been phenomenal, and our participants, of course, by asking such terrific questions, have been phenomenal as well. Um, and I, I think that um, it's what sort of makes the program having all of these wonderful speakers and also having. Um, such really great, um, you know, such such great participants as well. So I want to thank everyone. We do have many more questions in queue, and so um, and and so we, and we actually probably could go on a good part of the afternoon, but we did say this would be an hour program, and we have gone slightly over. So I do want to go over with you though the fact that um, we do want you, those of you who are on the program today, who are listening, who either asked a question or didn't get to ask a question. In either case, we want you to take the information you've learned today and hopefully with greater confidence go back to your treating healthcare team and ask them the questions that you either asked today or you, um, or you didn't have a chance to ask but want to ask because your healthcare team, of course, knows the most about each of you. That's really important. We also, um, there are many resources to get 
question, answers to your questions as well. We like you to go to credible resources. So when you get the evaluation, um, survey monkey evaluation from Cancer Care, it will be an evaluation, but also include lots of resources that we've put together for you to get some of your questions answered um, in addition to your healthcare team. But we never want to circumvent or sidestep your healthcare team because, again, they really know the most about you and it's, it's definitely worth your either, if you have a question, you can set up a telemedicine or telehealth appointment with your physicians, with your healthcare team, and ask those questions. That's very important. Um, and um, also, this is a time of year when uh, people, um, due to COVID, are feeling alone. Actually, it's very normal to feel alone. We want you to know that you're now, that they're, and that's a normal feeling to have. Um, we do want you to stay safe during this time of year. I think our speakers have addressed this issue, and we do want you to stay safe. It means wearing masks. It means, means um, social distancing, um, hand washing. All those things are very important, particularly as we enter into, um, for some people, a holiday season or a holiday a season in many countries, whether it be your holiday or not, is just a, a time of year when there's, um, you know, this issue about getting together as, as family members. So be aware of that as well. Also, for any of you who wish to take advantage of cancer care services, you may call us um, or you may um, send an email to our, our website and we will address your question. Um, and I want to thank you all for your participation today. I think you've been a terrific group. I, I actually uh, just can't thank you enough. And um, I look forward to your being on other programs. And um, please take good care. Ladies and gentlemen, thank you for your participation. This concludes the workshop. You may now disconnect. Everyone have a great day. <laughs>